Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You are listening to the TLS. This is Good Chaps, How the English Upper Classes Appropriated Fair Play from the Lower Orders by Ferdinand Mount from the issue of February 3rd, 2023. Ferdinand Mount's new book, Big Caesars and Little Caesars, From Julius Caesar to Boris Johnson, will be published later in 2023. It's such a sweet and gentle-sounding phrase – If you had never heard the expression before, it might make you think of a child playing with her doll. And when you do hear it used these days, it is most often to describe some gentlemanly action in sport. The slip fielder who admits that the ball did not carry into his hands on the full. The footballer who kicks the ball into touch when he sees an opponent lying injured on the ground. We fondly believe, or is it used to believe that such behaviour is quintessentially English. Yet the first example of this belief that Jonathan Duke Evans gives us in his fascinating, scrupulous and occasionally puckish survey of fair play through the ages is not like that at all. It comes from the pen of Daniel Defoe in 1705 and is tinged with all Defoe's waspish irony. England is particularly famous for the most generous way of fighting in the world. I mean as to the common people's private quarrels. While the Dutch mangle one another with knives, 
The Scotch Highlanders knock one another's brains out with poleaxes, the Irish stab with their skeins, and Spaniards with their daggers, the Englishmen fairly box it out, and in this way of fighting the rabble stand by to see fair play, as they call it, which is that when a man is down, tis counted foul play, and the trick of a coward, to strike him, but let him rise, and then have at him. So we meet fair play in its modern sense, not on the playing fields of Eton, but in a rough early modern street fight. As soon as the fight started, we are told the cry would go up, A ring! A ring! And the bystanders would crowd into a circle to see the fun and to see fair play. This seems to be the forerunner of the modern boxing ring, roped off with its referee prowling around the boxers. Fair play was expected in other rough milieu too. In the same year, William Macri, in his long essay on cockfighting, insists, with respect both to the wagerers and the cocks, that all parties may have fair play. The soldier George Carlton, taken prisoner during the War of Spanish Succession, denounced the bullfight he witnessed because the good-natured bull came short of fair play. Far from the concept being devised by Victorian gentry, it was thought to have deep popular roots. If deplorably the mob loved a fight, they insisted that it should be a fair fight, and middle-class observers were ready to exult in the fact. In 1769, J.C., in the Town and Country magazine, boasts that foreigners are obliged to acknowledge the generosity which prevails even in the boxing bouts between our common people in the streets, the anxiety which every bystander shows for fair play and the custom of the combatants in shaking hands, in token of being void of rancour, mark the temper of the nation. And this boast leads to an ulterior boast. J.C. claims that as experience has surely taught us, it is owing to this spirit among the common people that our armies and fleets are rendered the terror of the world. A nation which had learnt how to play up, play up, and play the game, as Sir Henry Newbolt exhorted in Vitae Lampada, would simply play the game better. After being recruited to the War Propaganda Bureau, Newbolt wrote in the Book of the Happy Warrior, published in 1917, of the moral qualities such as leadership and endurance and fair play, which are indispensable for war. Yet he can have been under few illusions about the nature of the game that was being played. The same poem includes the lines, The sand of the desert is sodden red, red with the wreck of a square that broke, the gatlings jammed and the colonel dead, and the regiment blind with dust and smoke. Newbolt seems to have been thinking of the Battle of Abu Kli in 1885, although the machine gun that mowed down the Mahdi's dervishes and then jammed was a gardener, not one of the gatlings devised by Richard Gatling during the American Civil War. Not exactly fair play by any definition, the odds became even more unequal with the appearance of the fully automatic and more reliable Maxim gun, as the villainous Captain William Blood in Hilaire Belloc's The Modern Traveller, published in 1898, exults only six years after Vitae Lampada. 
Whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not. Similarly, in Scouting for Boys, published in 1908, Robert Baden-Powell declared that Britons, above all other people, insist on fair play. Other nations are not so good. Often we hear of wounded men being again shot and killed in battle when they are lying helpless on the ground. He goes on to give an example from his intimate experience of the Boer Wars of a Boer firing shots into a helpless wounded British soldier. BP does not mention the British concentration camps in South Africa, where thousands of Boers died. This admiration for fair play and the public school system was not confined to imperial propagandists. Giuseppe di Lampedusa bought the whole British package. Fair play, sense of humour, self-deprecation, even the fagging system. Separation from the family and a life with contemporaries eradicates that type of mama's boy so perniciously frequent the more one travels to the south, Compulsory sports in the open air in any weather prevent timidity and physical fear and train one for rapid decisions and teamwork, a singular and complicated system of interdependence between the eldest and the youngest accustoms boys to service without humiliation and to command without believing themselves all-powerful. Duke Evans describes as the great appropriation the way in which popular traditions of fair play were taken over by the gentry and remoulded not only as a model for national character, but as a criterion of gentility and breeding. Games like football, which had been rough street pastimes, viewed with displeasure and often banned by the authorities, were transported to secluded, manicured playing fields and their rules codified by bodies like the MCC, and the Football Association, or so the self-serving tradition claims. But the scarce surviving evidence suggests that the rules of many sports had been agreed much earlier by the common people who played them. Richard Carew of Antony describes in his survey of Cornwall, published in 1602, the elaborate rules for Cornish hurling, which included prohibitions on unfair tackling, shirt-pulling and passing to a man in an offside position. Gervais Markham, in his Cavallaris, published five years later, lays down rules for race-riding which would be familiar to a modern steward's inquiry. Now for the rules of foul play, as the crossing of ways, the striking of your adversary's horse athwart the face the shouldering him up into uneven paths or rough ways whereby you may endanger to overthrow him. Nor is it true that the origins of cricket were gentry-led. On the contrary, it was John Nyron and the villagers of Hambledon who taught the ins and outs of the game to the Duke of Dorset and Sir Horace Mann who came down to play with them on Broad Ha'penny Down. Oddly enough, we are rather more familiar with the evolution of the codes of medieval chivalry and the rules that governed tournaments, together with the conspicuous acts of gallantry and generosity that distinguished the top seeds. 
For example, Archite in Chaucer's Knight's Tale deliberately chooses the worst armour so as not to give himself an unfair advantage against his rival for the lady they both love. But Duke Evans does not shirk the casual brutality of the Arthurian knights who are always cruising for a bruising or of Robin Hood's merry men who make a point of castrating any monks they come across to prevent them from breaking their vows of chastity and fathering illegitimate children. The Chevalier de Bayard may have been sans peur et sans reproche in his knightly combats, but he invariably executed any enemy gunners who fell into his hands, regarding this newfangled, long-range method of killing as essentially unfair. The colonial tribesmen could have been forgiven for feeling the same about the British machine guns, or Patan tribesmen today about being taken out by American drones, or indeed by Prince Harry in his Apache. Nor does Duke Evans fail to point out that the men who drew up codes of fair play were often ghastly characters. John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester, who is said to have drawn up the code for tourneys in 1466, was a brute who executed scores of Lancastrian rebels. The Marquis of Queensbury was by no means the only person to draw up a formal code for boxing, but he was easily the nastiest, and not just to Oscar Wilde and Bosey. In any case, some of our most admired leaders have not even pretended to respect the principle of fair play, Winston Churchill supreme in this as in much else. It was Churchill who authorised the use of poison gas against the Russians in 1919, likewise the bombing of insurgent tribesmen in Iraq in the 1920s and the saturation bombing of civilian populations in the Second World War, against the advice of the generals and his more squeamish colleagues. When the Ordnance Board advised in 1940 that the sticky bomb, anti-tank grenade, should not be used because it broke all the rules of the game and just could not be permitted, Churchill overruled them. He was always an enthusiast for guerrilla warfare of all sorts, the commandos, the SAS and SOE, and encouraged their daredevil methods unhampered by scruple. Recruits being trained for the commandos in Scotland in 1940, like my father, were told to forget all notions of fair play. My father did not confide this instruction to me, but he did recall with a certain horrified admiration the ruthless way with a dagger exhibited by the legendary Sterling brothers Bill and David when dropped behind enemy lines. David Sterling founded the SAS and for his hit-and-run raids in the desert was dubbed the Phantom Major by Rommel. In peacetime he became restless and founded a secret phalanx called GB75 designed to infiltrate the trade unions and possibly overthrow the Wilson government. If this coup had come to anything, would he have been any gentler with recalcitrants than he had been with German sentries? And if British heroes have not always had much time for fair play, it is not true either that other languages have no equivalent to fair play. French has beau jeu, Spanish and Portuguese have juego limpio and yogo limpo. 
the Russians have Chestnaya Igra. The Irish epic, the Tawn, has several references to Fear Fair, but Duke Evans dismisses its hero Cúchollin as little more than a killing machine. The obsession with fair play does, however, seem to be peculiarly English. Mentions of fair play rise steadily during the heyday of empire and decline quite sharply thereafter, clearly discredited as a governing principle by two world wars, one ending in the use of poison gas by both sides, the other in nuclear annihilation. The rise is indisputably linked not only to national pride, but to national anxiety, as much about the character and physique of the British people as about the firepower of their armed forces. This anxiety was acutely voiced by Charles Kingsley and the muscular Christians after the dismal casualty rate in the Crimean War. Pierre de Coubertin founded the modern Olympic movement out of a similar anxiety in France after the humiliation of the Franco-Prussian War. Duke Evans resists pointing out too harshly that German really has no native word for the thing, but makes do with the English imports Sportlichet and Das Fairplay, nor does he devote much attention to how different the experience was in the German-speaking lands. The defeats by Napoleon certainly prompted an urge for national revival, but the form it took under the leadership of Friedrich Jan, der Turnwater, the father of gymnastics, was very far from the ideals of Kingsley and Coubertin. As Hans Kohn tells us in his marvellous essay, Father Jan's Nationalism, Review of Politics, October 1949, the ideals of fair play, of the good loser, of the gentleman, did not fascinate Jan's mind. His vision was rather of a fanatical Volkstum trained to be utterly ruthless in the pursuit of a greater, racially purer Germany. A century later, the Nazis found in Jan's teaching a ready-made ideology, stressing physical fitness and readiness to sacrifice all for the fatherland. Jan's Turnerschaft was a people's army in embryo following the black, red and gold flag which he promoted so assiduously out of the black night of slavery through the red blood of battle to the golden day of liberty. Jan promised that every people will revere the world-maker and unity-bringer as its saviour and will forgive all his sins. In other words... The Fuhrer would always be right. As Duke Evans remarks, the ideal of play has a strange doubleness about it, suggesting on the one hand an almost anarchic freedom, a roaming of the imagination that we see in children's make-believe games, but at the same time an implied structure and a framework of rules. The insistence on fair play is the consequence of competition, but it is also an intensifier of competition. The more rules there are, the more obsessive the competition and the interpretation of those rules. This in itself is no novelty. The knights of the round table are insanely competitive. They appear to have no ulterior cause, such as the protection of their homeland. Their only aim is to win personal glory. They are the first pot-hunters obsessed with the quest for the Holy Grail. Much about the ancient Olympic Games is familiar to us too, including the attempts to cheat. 
But what is remarkable about the modern era is the way that competition has permeated every aspect of life. Running, dancing, singing, fighting, swimming, kicking, hitting and throwing a ball, all are subjected to the merciless eye of the referee and the judges, along with even less likely subjects for competition, such as pottery, jam-making, selling insurance and telling jokes. At the same time, as a reaction, you detect the counter-itch to escape the competitive grind, to go wild swimming, jog off into the hills, take to free verse, free dance, anything you can do on your own, in the hope of recovering joy and gracefulness for their own sake, without any sort of medal in view. But while competitiveness retains its grip, so does the insistence on fair play, without which all these competitions would be so many shams and scams at the mercy of cheats, hackers and dopers. Thus, while fair play as a concept may come to look like an old-fashioned joke, an early target of satirists from the 1960s onwards, in reality society becomes ever more rules-based, policed and buttressed by codes of conduct, investigating committees and appeal panels. It was one of the illusions behind Brexit that a return to a more freebooting, untrammeled world of trade and commerce might be possible. Six years on, the grip of the rulemakers has become, if anything, more ineluctable. Stockbrokers and insurance salesmen used to be regulated mostly by the principle of my word is my bond. Now they are suffocated by the mountains of paperwork demanded by the regulators in order to protect consumers and investors. Compliance is a major player. The credibility of the phrase itself has taken several knocks, for example, when Jonathan Aiken pledged to take up the simple sword of truth and the trusty shield of fair play and eventually landed up in jail. In conversation these days, you are more likely to hear the phrase fair play to X, in which the speaker concedes, often rather grudgingly, that X has done the right thing, although he doesn't as a rule care much for X. I first heard the expression only 20 years ago and was puzzled by it at first. Duke Evans tells us that Sir Keith Thomas remembers his father using the phrase back in the 1940s. The consensus seems to be that it came from Ireland originally. Anyway, it's a phrase you more often hear spoken than see written down. But the old ideal of fair play trickles on as a persistent underground stream in the national debate, coming to the surface now and then, especially when people are struggling to define their vision of British society. For example, the committee under Sir Bernard Crick, which in 2005 drew up the Britishness test for migrants seeking UK citizenship stipulated a familiarity with concepts of British political life, adherence to human rights, the values of toleration and fair play, freedom of speech and of the press, and open government. The other desiderata can mostly be legislated for, but fair play? That's a tougher one to codify. Duke Evans confides in a footnote that he himself worked very closely with Crick on the development and implementation of the citizenship test. As a lifelong civil servant in the Home Office and the Ministry of Defence, where he was head of claims, judicial review and public inquiries, 
he must have as much experience as anyone alive of the workings of all those bodies designed to see fair play in public life. Now in his sixties, he is a little too modest in this, his first book, in deploying that experience to show in detail how over recent decades the insistence on fair play has actually tightened its grip on British politics, especially in the interaction between politics and the courts. He does quote the gentle reproof of Lord Lisvane, better known as Sir Robert Rogers, former clerk of the House of Commons, when Boris Johnson announced his extended prorogation of Parliament in August 2019, which was subsequently declared illegal by the Supreme Court. To be ineffably old-fashioned about it, I think there's an element of fair play involved. But Duke Evans does not engage with Peter Hennessy's piercing critique that the British political system relied on good chaps to run it, and is in danger of falling apart now that we are no longer governed by good chaps. In a way, this can be seen as the burning issue of the hour, but the answer is not necessarily the one that Hennessy offers. Yes, at times it seems as if those green benches are infested with gropers, rapists, pornographers, chiselers, cheats and scammers. Yet, in a remarkably short space of time, the much-maligned system does seem to have generated its own immune response to the plague. Since the expenses scandal of 2009, a stream of MPs have been disgraced for financial or sexual misconduct. Half a dozen MPs and several members of the House of Lords have been jailed. Parliament has proved itself well able to generate the instruments required to invigilate fair play and punish breaches of it, such as the Freedom of Information Act and the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority. And the party managers are well aware that they have to respond promptly to the indignation of local parties. In the current Parliament, the number of erring MPs who have been forced to retire or been deprived of the party whip now constitutes the fourth largest party in the House. But the biggest scalp of all was that of Boris Johnson. No other Prime Minister in history, let alone one with a majority of 80, has been thrown out solely for his offences against fair play. There was, after all, no significant rebellion against Johnson's policies or his legislative achievements or failures. He was sacked by his own MPs, solely on grounds of his personal misconduct. For months, his complacent supporters went on chortling that Partygate and the Owen Patterson and Chris Pincher affairs were not cutting through to ordinary voters who were too broad-minded to fuss about such fluff. Then suddenly those issues did cut through and Tory support in opinion polls and by-elections melted like snow in the Alps these days. It was clear that Partygate in particular had offended against the sovereign fair play principle of reciprocity, that the same law must apply to everyone. The spirit of fair play is far from dead, either in Parliament or among the voters. And once roused, it is an implacable spirit. You have been listening to the TLS. This was Good Chaps... How the English Upper Classes Appropriated Fair Play from the Lower Orders by Ferdinand Mount from the issue of February 3rd, 2023. It was read by Peter Hanley for NOAA.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 